This is Reset. I'm Michael Puente in for Sasha Ann Simons. It's Friday at noon, so it's time for the weekly news recap, our deep dive into the biggest state and local stories of the week. Snow, wind, cold. In that order. Snow, wind, cold. Snow, wind, cold. That's what you need to know. And this mix of high winds, poor visibility, and extreme cold arrive just as the city anticipates a surge in holiday air travel. Chicago police looking for a gunman that shot and killed two teens and injured two others just outside Benito Juarez High School in Pilsen. Earlier this year, the city inked a deal to let race cars zoom down a 2.2-mile stretch around Grant Park and the museum campus. But critics think the city has found itself in a bad arrangement. Another heartbreaking loss of a Chicago police officer due to an apparent suicide. And we have a wonderful panel today to give us a scoop. With us is Amy Guth, host of Crane Chicago Business Podcast, The Daily Gist. Welcome to Reset, Amy. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. And we've got David Greising, president of the Better Government Association. Welcome back, David. Great to be here. <laughs> and with us is somebody who's very new to radio, so she might be a little nervous. It's <laughs> Becky Vivi. She's the bureau chief for Chalk Beach, Chicago, and obviously she used to work here at WBZ. Welcome back to WBZ. Becky. Thanks, Mike. Got your radio voice on. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Remember, you can watch uh, the weekly news recap live on WBEZ's Facebook and YouTube pages. Well, the big story this week is the season's first big winter storm hitting just as the holiday travel was taken off. Becky, how did the storm impact schools? Well, you know, they did end up canceling after school programming yesterday, but They didn't have to cancel the school day, which some people worried, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, they were watching the forecast thinking, oh, are we going to be out early on Thursday as well? Um, Schools are off for break starting today. So in Chicago, everyone, all their their children are home um, and they'll be off through January uh, 9th, 10th. So two weeks here for, for Chicago public school children. Wow, wow. And a lot of things are closed because of the weather and museums, courthouses, downtowns, Chris Kindle Market closed two days earlier. But you know what didn't get canceled is tomorrow's Bears game against the <laughs> Buffalo Bills. Are, are any of you going to uh, the Soldier Field tomorrow? Well, we have Hard season no. tickets, but we decided a while back to sell them. And I saw the aftermarket. These tickets that normally about $150 are selling for about $15 on uh, the yeah. aftermarket's website. Nobody wants yeah. to go. <laughs> I saw, <laughs> With a I saw tickets for like low. nine bucks. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you yeah. can take the whole family easily exactly. now. Yeah. They'll pay you to go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So no one's going to hit out there. Well, the storm had a big impact on area airports, too, with uh, airlines canceling hundreds of flights on one of the busiest travel days of the year. Over at O'Hare and Midway, travelers rushed to make it in or out before the winter storm hit. And as all that was going on, Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raul made headlines calling for more consumer protections for airline travelers. Amy, what is he hoping to see? You know, it's unclear exactly what it is, but it certainly seems like it's a matter of wanting a little, wanting, attorney generals wanting that oversight over the airlines. So as the Department of Transportation is putting forth some guidelines and and pushing for more from airlines, uh, Kwame Raul uh, and 33 other state attorneys general are looking for a lot more transparency. I think that's really the big thing because we're seeing a lot of, you know, there's been so much that's happened to the airlines over the last couple of years and so much frustration. And so many, uh, you know, so many people getting bumped off of planes. We have fewer planes in the sky. There's staffing Mm -hmm. issues. There's all that kind of thing. So really, it's about, you know, 
not being able to sell seats uh, if there's not personnel to actually operate that aircraft. If you get bumped off a flight, not being not being able to, you know, the airlines can't then sell a more expensive flight to the same destination. So with, and, and clear guidelines of what happens when your flight gets canceled. How do you recoup those, you know, those costs? How do you get on another on another flight? All of those kinds of things. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch. Uh, the letter was from these these AGs were sent to uh, U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, and they say that you know while these new proposed regulations are are great, they're positive, they just don't go far enough. So I think they want a little more, but I think the state attorneys general want a little personal oversight over over some of those things too and their ability to enforce them. But do you think this is warranted or you think the airlines there's just sort of an easy target given that it is a busy season, there's a storm hitting, people are frustrated. Is is this are they easy targets or is this are, are these uh, concerns valid? You know, I think they're valid, especially as we have seen staffing issues and smaller fleets impacting travel so, so much. And when we look at delays, when we look at all of the things that are kind of converging at, at airlines right now and with carriers, it, a lot of people are very frustrated. A lot of people really are. At O'Hare, you know, and that's such a major hub. So I think we, we are especially watching it and we have United based here. So there's a lot to watch. But I, I do, I think it is warranted. And I think some more oversight because it's just air travel is different than it was pre-pandemic. David, do you think the airlines are kind of an easy target on this or is it valid? Well, they're an easy target, but but they probably deserve to be targeted in yeah. some sense because we're accustomed to, as Amy was saying, during the pandemic, things shut down and when passengers were willing to cut them slack. Now they're having boom times. They are really making a lot of money. They are flying full flights. They are scheduling flights that sort of ghost flights that they don't actually intend to staff and fly. And passengers are, uh, if nothing else, inconvenienced. And of course, then if they then try to make you pay the extra cost, that's really unfair. So um, it's good that they're looking at this. I don't think the AGs are going to have much effect. Yeah. Uh, tra- air transportation is a national issue, and the federal government probably will want to maintain all the control it can. Right. Well, before families head out for the holidays, Chicago's top doc and Chicago's public schools chief pleaded with parents to get kids vaccinated and to keep practicing pandemic precautions. Becky, what are the what's the current situation with COVID in the schools? Yeah, so we have seen increasing numbers of cases in the last few weeks in the month of December. We did see the numbers go up. Um, they do anticipate that they will go up even as kids are out of school. In, in fact, probably more because there will be you know, gatherings with families and cousins from other schools. Um, and they are really encouraging the that population to get vaccinated because we know that the youngest children are have the least vaccine uptake for many, many, many reasons. Um, but they are really hoping that people will kind of, as the threat looms, as COVID continues to spread, people will finally, you know, roll up their sleeves and have their children vaccinated as well. Um, the under five c- category, too, I have some little ones myself. Um, they are now eligible to be vaccinated and get um, get boosters, too. And the the city's public health commissioner said, you know, we are about 17 percent with one dose in that age group, which is double the national rate. But it's still 
pretty low, and she really wants to see that go up. She also touted flu shots. Um, mm-hmm. They talked about rising flu uh, rates. Um, my niece and nephew had flu a couple weeks ago, and I think flu is just as rampant right now. And so they're really encouraging people to take advantage of flu vaccines and COVID vaccines. They, um, you know, the mayor held a press conference yesterday touting the at-home Chicago program. You can call 311 and say, hey, bring it to my house, you know, bring it to my Christmas Mm. party and everyone can get vaccinated. So and absent that, you know, they're also encouraging people to test before gathering. Um, The Mm -hmm. government is providing free tests. And, you know, schools are out of session now, but schools were offering people to pick up those at-home tests, right, at the schools. Um, You can get them run through your insurance at at Walgreens and CVS as well. Well, I got to ask you this. What are, like, some of the precautions you're taking at home? Are you still wearing masks? (laughs) I I know I'm not, but I got family members who still do, and they do it religiously. What's How about yours? Yeah, we do. You know, I will say personally, like, we do when we are out um, in settings where we don't know people. Uh, You know, we went to my cousin's graduation from college last weekend. I wore masks the whole time. Um, big gathering. My little ones, they're three in one. So like, getting a mask on their face is, is difficult. But mm. they also are just like little, you know, booger monsters with runny <laughs> noses. Um, and so like we do we do test. I will say we we do try to swab them when we know we're going to be exposing or going to a big party or or you know, seeing elderly people or immunocompromised people um, so that at least we know if it's not COVID. I have said a few times to my husband, man, I wish there was a swab for for flu and RSV too, so I could like check that. But, um, you know, we just keep an, keep an eye on it and we do, sure. we do stay home a lot. I will say we are planning to stay home through through early next week and then and then see my parents. David, what about you? Are you still wearing the mask out in public or not really? Well, uh, on and off, I recently uh, contracted COVID for the first time uh, just before Thanksgiving and um, had really gone maskless for a while. And so now it's sort of back on top of my mind. So I'm back to wearing uh, sort of the situations just Becky just described. What about you, Amy? I'm in the same boat. I, I you know, I also, um, you know, try. I, I don't go out a lot. I mean, that's the other part of it. So much of what I do is from home, so I don't have to be out in it much. But when I am, uh, especially travel, that's right. I, I have twice now been Airport, the only person on. Stores. Yeah, only person on a flight wearing a mask, and I am totally mm. okay with that. Well, this is Reset. I'm Michael Puente in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines on the weekly news recap with Becky Vivi of Chalk Beach, Chicago, David Grising of the Better Government Association, and Amy Guth, host of Crane Chicago Business Podcast, The Daily Gist. Remember, you can watch now, you can watch on our the weekly news recap live on WBEZ's Facebook page and YouTube pages. Radio people doing Video, a little nervous. <laughs> so you can check out the video live stream right now on, on the Resets Facebook page. And we have, we're taking some comments. And uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about some of the, the airlines. And I asked, uh, you know, are, you know, are airlines, you know, some of uh, getting kind of not picked on, but is it valid? And Paige Smith wrote, they are valid. The air travel industry is and has been very successful at abusing the public. So that was a comment. Uh, I believe on the YouTube page. But moving forward, the Pilsen community is still recovering from last Friday's tragedy. Four students shot two fatally outside Benito Juarez High School. Becky, let's start with how the community and the students and the faculty have responded. Yeah, so um, there was an adjusted schedule all week this week for the students um, and staff over at Juarez, and the school district did send a crisis response team, additional counselors. They also have some community partnerships where, you know, they worked with 
um, sort of folks who could help students um, process this grief because there were people who heard the gunshots and even saw what happened. And that will stick with them for a very, very long time. And so, you know, this week, I think that was sort of an all hands on deck approach and really a ultimate flexibility for everyone in that building. Um, I think the question for me that I'm curious about as we go through the next through the spring and the, the, the rest of the school year is, you know, how does that last? Um, you know, how long will they be able to provide those additional supports? Um, we at Talkbeat looked a little bit at staffing in that school as it relates to counselors and social workers and did see they do have, um, since 2019, they have an additional social worker and an additional counselor. So that was some good news. Um, we have seen schools across the district staff up in those areas using a lot of the federal COVID stimulus money that, that the district got. Um, hopefully, that, that those, those, those additions can sustain themselves beyond when that money dries up. But in this moment, I think it's, it's really helpful for that community and for that school. Um, they did have a sort of a walkout peace walk the mm-hmm. other day. Our reporter, Samantha Smiley, w- went and took some photos and, and really, you know, it's very touching to see the students and the staff sort of come together and support one another. Um, and I, we also did take a look at, um, you know, the, the impact that the uh, Noble, we talked to the Noble schools that they um, they had two of the, one of the students who died and one who was injured attended nearby Noble Street campuses. That's a charter school. And um, they also said that they provided some additional support to their students and their and their staff because these things, you know, they happen at one school, but they can impact a lot of schools <laughs> throughout the district. And this issue also impact schools throughout the district. We've written about mm-hmm. um, shootings at other schools over the years. Um, and that's just, you know, the tragic reality. And I think um, we we see at Juarez uh, kind of an ongoing conversation about kind of how does the district respond in these moments. Well, there's also a talk about like school resource officers oh, right. or like police yes, officers yeah. with guns would, you know, earlier this week when I was doing a little reporting on it, I spoke to 24th Ward Alderman Byron Sixto Lopez, mm-hmm. Who who's against these kind of uh, resource officers and they're saying that they don't work. What, what's been the feeling on that? Yeah, so it's interesting. They had a special LSC meeting last night. I know um, WBEZ Sarah Carp, I believe, um, covered that. And I think that there's still a feeling from the community that that's not the answer. I mean, this is one of um, a couple dozen high schools who just a little background in history, voted about two years ago in the wake of the George Floyd protests to remove police officers from their schools. So all the high schools in Chicago, a lot of them have these police officers. They're called school resource officers. Um, and they started voting to remove them. Um, they're, they're paid for and staffed by the Chicago Police Department. I should note, sometimes I think there's a misnomer. People don't realize there are still security officers in schools, mm-hmm. even if the police officers have been quote-unquote, removed. So Juarez was one of these schools two years ago that removed these officers. And a lot of people even, you know, as Sarah reported, on the LSC and in the community, whether or not they had had those officers, they don't feel like that's the reason that this could have been prevented had they had them. And so I think there's still this overwhelming feeling that that's not the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there are some in the community who say, well, if we had, you know, a police presence outside, perhaps it wouldn't have happened. Or maybe at dismissal, we should have police presence. So that will continue being a conversation. And it's been a conversation before even this incident. 
And do we know anything about, you know, what led up to this? Did the, the police have a suspect at this time? They don't. On Saturday, last Saturday, they did release some grainy video surveillance photos. Um, but we, I haven't seen anything and heard anything, any updates in terms of victims or anybody coming forward saying, hey, I know who that person is. So. You know, you know and, and this tragedy strikes an area, Pilsen, just as one of my favorite city parts of the city neighborhoods. It's like they have a dynamic downtown area, business, night scene. Um, there is some gentrification going over there. But overall, it's just just a fabulous part of the city. And it's really hard to see this going through. Amy, what do you, what do you think about that community suffering through something like this? I mean, it's it's an overwhelming thing, right? It's it's tough for all involved. It involves a lot of difficult decisions and difficult conversations. And, um, you know, I, I recently uh, have, uh, had a couple of conversations with some folks that were that were kind of thinking of, this was like weighing on their hearts and minds and just they were really thinking and, and felt kind of what is the answer and what can I do? And I think there's a sense of, you know, sometimes powerlessness that can be overwhelming, but I think there's also a, a great sense of, of hope, particularly in Pilsen. There's like, there's so, as you said, there's so much to that community. Oh, there is it's such a special community. And I, I mean, we can say that about every neighborhood in Chicago because yeah. every neighborhood is so very different, you know, but there's so much happening in Pilsen and there's a lot of community strength and resilience in Pilsen that I think is really lovely. I don't want to keep mentioning this, but I did run the Chicago Marathon last in October, but it was the my favorite <laughs> neighborhood. neighborhood to yeah. run through. I did a 5K uh, also shortly after that, and it's just great. And like, like David, there's so many vibrant communities in Chicago, but Pilsen is one of the ones that are, you know, seems to be on the rebound, but still sort of have almost two sides to it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm thinking as, as this discussion is going on about the neighborhoods that aren't seeing these improvements and are mm-hmm. dealing with homicides all the time. We actually saw fewer homicides in 2022 than in 2021, uh, which is remarkable given the uh, rate of, of death in this city, 674 uh, so far in 22 and 797 last year. Um, but every one of those is the kind of situation that Becky was talking about. Every one of those people have families, et cetera, and the impact uh, as Becky said, it doesn't go away immediately and in some respects never goes away. And it's, I think a lot about these communities uh, where this is more commonplace and they're dealing with it on an almost daily basis. Mm-hmm. Becky, before we move on, do do school resource officers normally, ha- are they armed in, in most cases? I believe they are. I mean, they, yes, they are. They are a Chicago Police Department officer, like I said, funded by and paid for by the police off by the police department. Um and just stationed in schools. Um, and in addition, like I said, there are security officers. Those security officers are not not armed. Those are school staff. And I've talked to folks who will say sometimes, like, the security officer, not the police officer, but the security officer, a lot of them are like the clerk. You know, they, mm-hmm. are, they are kind of the fabric of the school, the eyes and the ears. And they do develop really strong relationships with students mm-hmm. oftentimes. Um, I think about one at our, my son's school even. He like has really good relationships and coaches the eighth grade, ba- the middle school basketball team. And so I think um, that that is, um, you know, there are lots of different, you know, machinations of security and police in schools and um, they're not all created equal necessarily and this is why the district said if you know that individual schools could decide and take these votes as to whether or not they wanted officers in their buildings 
Well, we do know certainly this is a, you know, it's it's a holiday season, Christmas, and we do know families are hurting out there for what happened in Pilsen and our thoughts and prayers go out to the families and loved ones of the, the victims. Well, turning out of politics, the Chicago Board of Elections has officially eliminated the first mayoral candidate from February's ballot. Amy, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, this was kind of the long shot candidate anyway, Johnny uh, Logalo. Uh, was struck yesterday um, for two two separate issues. So first of it was there was a, he he had not filed the proper paperwork for the statement of economic interest, and also not uh, received the the correct number of signatures. So it was kind of this this twofold thing. Uh, but again, that was a that was a very long shot candidate. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be a fascinating mayoral race. We're down to ten now. Uh, <laughs> only it, ten. Uh, only <laughs> ten. You know, less than last time. <laughs> less, than, right, less than it was. Uh, and, and it's just going to be so interesting. Uh, you know, I was talking with uh, Greg Hines, the political columnist at Cranes, uh, recently, and you know, just it's been such an onslaught for any political reporter right now. It's like he was like, "Can I just have a minute? <laughs> Do I get a minute here?" Uh, and, and no, he. He doesn't get a minute. I don't think anybody covering politics right now does because there's just so much nationally and locally. Sure. But I think this is going to be a contentious one. It's going to be um, there's going to be a lot of there's just going to be a lot. You, you know, you can kind of feel it coming at you that this is going to be because the field is so wide. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, in the meantime, two other mayoral candidates. Well, well let's see. Well, uh, two other mayoral candidates will keep their spots on the ballot, at least for now. Yeah. Let's take a listen to what mayoral candidate Jamal Green had to say. Today is about making sure that the voters are being put first. We have spent too much resources and time down here fighting each other. Well, Amy, there there is a, a feud going on between Jamal Green and Willie Wilson. What's that all about, and what, what's the latest? You know, they've kind of called <laughs> called peace on this and made a deal to keep them both on the ballot without uh, without having to kind of pull a lot of stuff on each other, right? Mm-hmm. Without it without it being this really contentious and labor intensive sort of battle. What I think is interesting, though, had this proceeded, there would have been a residency challenge against Willie Wilson. Uh, that would move forward, kind of questioning whether or not he uh, truly resides in a Wacker Drive penthouse or this other home in suburban uh, Hazelcrest. So oh. that would have been interesting. But but there's peace has been declared. Truce declared. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but now Willie Wilson's campaign is still challenging Fifth Ward Alderman Roderick Sawyer's candidacy. Correct. That's right. Yeah, and and you know. Sawyer, I mean, he's an interesting one, right? Because I think what we sometimes lose in that is he is the son of Eugene Sawyer, who was who was Chicago mayor from uh, 1987 to 89. So he's got that kind of legacy, you know, family political piece there. But that case will move forward. That's moving to a hearing. And he he will be claiming the Harold Washington connection (laughs) in competition with Chuy Garcia. As will. (laughs) Garcia and Sawyer are are two who, you know, really will be duking that out. And his only hope probably to emerge as a leader is is to really wrap himself up in the Harold Washington uh, mm-hmm. banner, right? Oh, I think absolutely. Well, in we'll between Sawyer, Green, and Willie Wilson, and even some of the, I mean, Lori Lightfoot as well, like yeah. the question is um, the the really where the, the black vote ends up. Um, and then you have Brandon Johnson. I mean, you have a really, most of the people in this race are African-American. And so how do you, uh, what, what will, where will that vote fall? Um, and I think that that is partly where these challenges are, why these challenges are happening, because if you can get some of them off the ballot, then you have a better chance of picking up precincts. Well, let me, let me let, I know it's kind of early and we got a big field, but is Lori Lightfoot still the one to beat? She's the incumbent. Um, 
A lot of controversies, but is she still the one? Still. Any sitting mayor <laughs> is tough to beat. Uh, she gets to hold press conferences all the time that reporters actually show up at. Uh, she gets to set the agenda in ways that a candidate outside um, the fifth floor office of City Hall does not. However, she's got a lot of baggage. She has lost the support of the progressive wing that helped put her into office. Uh, Becky talked about the importance of the black vote. Uh, the Latino vote is going to be very, very important. And then Chuy Garcia, we have somebody who not only comes from the, from the progressive wing, but also likely will resonate with a um, the Latino vote. Um, there's also the sort of liberal white vote, and that also would be probably a deciding uh, aspect of who emerges. Uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that Lightfoot gets through to the runoff. Uh, it could be that she gets knocked out before then. Yeah, I mean, certainly she has the most name mm-hmm. recognition uh, alongside Chuy Garcia, I would say. Um, and But you have, again, other candidates who could capture, like, lakefront liberals um, mm-hmm. and, you know, don't count out. You've got Sophia King on the Fourth Ward who, you know, really has a lot of that South Lakefront and Hyde Park. Um, that's where her ward is. And Paul Vallis, former schools chief, who... Again, it's funny because a lot of these people are mm-hmm. repeat runners. Right. Um, they're running again. They ran either in 2019 or in 2015 even. Um, you know, Willie Wilson. Or both. Or both, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so it's very interesting to see, uh, I think, Sophia King, Rod Sawyer, and Paul Vallis um, probably are the only newcomers besides um, the one who's still, I think, being challenged. And I'm forgetting his name. Police officer. Um I don't have the list but, in front of uh, me. Weren't, Frederick, uh, weren't Collins. Frederick Collins. Frederick yeah. Collins, yes. Weren't, weren't Vallis and Garcia the top two in a, in a poll that was out this week and Lightfoot came in third, I think? Yeah, uh, um, there have been a lot of polls. Right, I feel right. like I haven't yeah. watched yeah. all so of them so yeah. closely. But it'll, it is so interesting because I feel like this race is very similar to 2019 and that the field was so crowded mm-hmm. that it was sort of such a toss-up till the very end. Um, and I remember even covering election night and – Seeing the polls roll in and people were like, oh, Lightfoot's right there at the top, like Daly's third. Um, and so it's just it, it was I think it will similarly be a, a bit of a like five to six way front runner top <laughs> of the race. I and think and Lightfoot got Lightfoot <laughs> got boosted by a Sun Times endorsement, yeah. and, and this time around yes. there will not be That's an right. endorsement because from the Chicago Sun Times because they're nonprofit. So voters will be left more to uh, fend for themselves, deciding who the best choice is. And I think in place of those those uh, news endorsements, we're going to see, we'll have to wait and see business leaders and mm-hmm. who kind of gets behind what candidate and how that works out because I think that's that new placeholder of this business I support or align myself with. Okay, their leadership feels this way. Right. That perhaps and carries union, some weight. Union leaders and union, as well. Yeah, so right. Chicago Teachers totally. Union, but also SEIU and some of these other strong unions, they're going to probably split a little between Garcia and Brennan Johnson. So it's going to be really interesting. David, on the, on the topic of endorsements, obviously Chicago Sun-Times is now part of the Chicago, Chicago, Chicago public media family. How influential were those endorsements? It seems like maybe they waned a little bit. Like some people, everybody has an opinion about a candidate and it's like, why should I listen to a newspaper? But how much influence do you think they had and will that be lost? Well, we saw last time because I, I would agree with the premise of your question that, that it does seem newspaper endorsements have sort of lost their place in the civic conversation. But we saw with Lori Lightfoot where she was really in the middle of the pack 
and that Sun-Times endorsement came out, and it was expected that Preckwinkle, Tony Preckwinkle, the Cook County board chair, and uh, um, uh, Bill Daly were going to be the first two, the top two. That knocked out, that endorsement really knocked out Bill Daly. And so Lori Lightfoot probably would not be mayor but for that endorsement. So that they still do have some sway, even in the in light of, you know, the influencers these days, social media influences a lot of vote, social media campaigns influence a lot of vote, et cetera. But um there's still there still was last time around a very important voice editorially. Mm-hmm. Well, a YouTube comment on uh, WB's YouTube page says, uh, "Is it? Uh, let me get this name up here. My uh, cursor kind of blocked the name. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Paige Smith writes, as Mike Royko used to say, get your popcorn. Chicago politics is the best show in town. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's zoom to our next topic. You like how I wrote that? Uh, yeah. that's, uh, uh, the mayor right now is being criticized for the city's deal with NASCAR. Uh, David, mm-hmm. get us up to speed, if you will, on this event. And what are the criticisms? I personally think it's going to be great, but what do I know? Well, it should be an exciting show to watch. But the question is, is the city getting a good deal out of NASCAR, which is trying to use the streets of our city in order to promote their brand and extend their audience beyond the uh, kind of southern uh, good old boy uh, base that they have built their huge enterprise on. And there's a lot of criticism coming out with regard to uh, Mayor Lightfoot's uh, working out this contract essentially with no input from the city council. Uh, before it was publicly announced, she basically the day before invited some council members to just basically be told, hey, we've got a contract and it's going to be a good. Uh, it's going to be two days of racing uh, in July. And some of the concerns have to do with other mega events. The city of Chicago has a lot of experience, especially with Lollapalooza, for example. This contract um, the uh, the comparison with Lollapalooza is striking. This contract, NASCAR is paying the city $500,000 a year up front and $2 per ticket. NASCAR, uh, Lollapalooza, it pays uh, $2 million for its uh, festival, music mm. festival, with 5% of the first $30 million worth of tickets, not just its skimpy $2 charge. And there's mm. also the big, the, another big issue is cleanup. Uh, basically, NASCAR has been asked to provide a $50,000 security deposit for damages. And if there are damages, which one might expect there will be based on our experience, um, the two parties will sort of work out who pays for it. Well, we've seen with Lollapalooza, uh, we've seen the cleanup costs alone go anywhere from uh, $280,000 in 2021 when it was a smaller crowd because of the pandemic to the high point in recent years. $645,000 of kind of remediation costs because Grant Park gets so beat up during the Lollapalooza Music Festival. So there are a lot of serious questions about whether Mayor Lori Lightfoot got a good deal from NASCAR, mm. if she could have gotten a better deal, and if she's just really doing this to promote sort of herself in the city and being taken in and in, in kind of on the wrong end of a business mm. deal with this, uh, this race car uh, enterprise. 
You know, kind of a, a side question mm-hmm. that, that came up with this is uh, came up through this was was through the museums, the shed and uh, the field museum kind of and, and the, you know, the art museum kind of at the art institute rather saying like, well, what about our things? Like how do how can that's a lot of noise and a lot of vibration and a that's lot of true. stuff. How can we protect these these artifacts and the animals and how will they not be impacted? And I think that's very interesting. Chicago Sports Commission said all oh, that's going to be addressed. But I feel like that's kind of been the theme is we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We will address it. We will address it. And it just seemed like it moved in so quickly before all the stakeholders had a chance to kind of think through their concerns with it. I think there should be sort of an open competition with some of the drivers on the Kennedy and the Bishop Ford because I think <laughs> yeah, right, some of those people drive, they, could, uh, they could take NASCAR drivers a run for their money. Let's okay. see how they do with our potholes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Yes, put them down, put them down Grand <laughs> Avenue. Right. And like, right. I hope they don't get the uh, speed light cameras, right? Turn those exactly. off for the race. Oh, yeah. Well, Paige, Paige Smith also writes on YouTube, better watch the Asian community while splitting the black and Latin community for vote. The Asian community might carry the day. I guess that's in relation to the mayor's race. Uh, Before we turn away from politics, uh, a local developer who went undercover for the feds building their case against former House Speaker Mike Madigan was sentenced to prison this week. David, what can you tell us about C.Y. Young? Well, this is the person who was caught up in the Chinatown uh, deal and uh, which was part of the uh, one of the charges uh, with regard to Mike Madigan. Um, he's got other issues, obviously, with uh, I, I think Danny Solis is probably his bigger concern when this case ultimately does come to trial. It just shows that the, the feds are, are continuing to build their case against Madigan. Um, as we're seeing in the Ed Burke case, it's going to take a long time uh, to bring Madigan to trial and uh, Ed Burke, what it's been charged, it's going to be three years before he comes to trial. So we continue to watch these cases. We continue to watch the feds sort of line up the testimony they're going to need if they're going to be successful in uh, putting Mike Madigan uh, in jail. You know, a tragic story we need to touch on. There have been three apparent suicides among Chicago police officers over the last week. Becky, do we have any details on these officers? Um, not uh, I don't have many in front of me, and I will say I know that the mayor spoke yesterday about this, and um, I think that it's often – there's a lot of debate around policing and police officers and in our city and in our country, and I think she took a moment yesterday that I thought was important and touching to acknowledge that the work that police do is very – can be very traumatic as well um, and that they deal with – exposure to um, very intense and traumatic events daily in their work. And so I think um, keeping that backdrop um, in mind, especially heading into the holidays and um, as, you know, reading with these three cases, um, keeping that in mind, I think, is important for people. Back now with more Reset, I'm Michael Puente filling in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're in the middle of our weekly news recap, so let's jump right back into the headlines. More marijuana dispensaries could be in the works for 2023 now that the state has announced a timeline for the next round of applicants. Staff were outside the hospital sharing information with those passing by as their union begins negotiating a new contract with the hospital. Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington. It is his first trip abroad since Russia invaded in February. 
With us are David Grising, president of the Better Government Association, and Amy Guth, host of Crane Chicago Business Podcast, The Daily Gist, and Becky Vivi, bureau chief for Chalk Beach Chicago. And we're saying hello to the people watching us live on Facebook and YouTube. Listeners can head over to those WBZ pages if you like to like a more visual experience of the weekly news recap, and you could join us there live or, or later. You know, in his first foreign trip since the Russian invasion of his country last February, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed a joint session of Congress on Wednesday. Against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. That same day here in Illinois, Governor Pritzker signed legislation forbidding the state's pension funds from investing in banks or other companies based in Russia and Belarus. David, will this have a significant impact on the state's pension funds? Well, it won't have a direct impact, really. It's $112 million worth of assets in pension funds that are worth many, many billions. It amounts to 0.005% of the pension fund investments. But the symbolic importance shouldn't be overlooked, uh, The basically underscoring the fact that Russia is uh, outside the scope of typical investment market activity these days. It has blacklisted itself. The part that was sort of overlooked in this bill that Governor Pritzker signed is the fact that there's going to be a task force looking into money laundering in real estate transactions, which has been a favored uh, practice of Russian uh, oligarchs and others trying to get assets out of that country. And the other is looking into any record of election interference. And we know that the Illinois Board of Elections uh, database was attacked by Russians in the 2020 election. And um, it's worth uh, noting that and worth looking into what are the vulnerabilities uh, before we head into the next presidential election. I mean, what do you think about what uh, the governor signed? Well, I mean, I think it's a really important move of uh, move in solidarity. You know, I, the part of it I've been watching mostly has been uh, business divestment from Russia, specifically with Chicago-based McDonald's, how that went. At one point, it seemed almost comedic, right, because the trademark quickly, quickly was not a thing. It was it was, uh, you know, suddenly available for much more creative interpretation. It became like Uncle Vanya's. So we're going to have this Chekhov, re- you know, reference happening all the pl- all over the place. So. Uh, you know, just the way it, it shifted, I think there were the the wave of people that quickly said, OK, we're cutting ties in Russia. We're exiting this Russian market. And then there were other companies that kind of had to take a minute and, you know, like Mondelez saying, well, but that's that's food supply. Do we want to divest when we're, you know, we're talking about jobs, but we're also maybe going to be taking food out of this place. So, you know, I think that part has been really, really interesting to watch. My Crane's colleague, Ali Marathi, has been reporting on that a lot of just how complicated that got after that first wave of immediate uh, immediate reaction there was a, a lot of other uh, a lot of other considerations particularly with um real estate and legal firms that were suddenly in a really tough spot of who am I representing and what are their ties, I think that became a really huge, huge conversation that we will continue to see the fallout from and continue to see decisions being made around for for quite a while. 
Well, we do have a couple of comments on our WBZ's YouTube page from Olu uh, Odesita said about Zelensky's speech. It was a heartfelt, passionate speech, though some were upset that he was not appropriately dressed. Mike Rooney said, Slava Ukraine, Chicago's Ukrainian community was extremely happy with the speech. His wife is Ukrainian and they have extended family here. Well, uh, Zelensky is going through a war, so maybe he didn't have a suit handy. <laughs> he's got bigger things on his mind it's than fashion. I think he's right. underscoring the fact that he's in the middle of a war yeah, and dressing appropriate to that. You see him all the time wearing these combat type gear and, yeah. and underscoring that he is just like everybody else in his country is in the middle of fighting for their lives. Yeah. So I live in the Ukrainian village here in Chicago, Mm. and it's been a really interesting place to observe all of this. Uh, You know, initially that was kind of ground zero for a lot of uh, shows of solidarity and some protests and things like that, particularly around two uh, religious centers and uh, a community center. But those flags are still flying quite a bit in that neighborhood. There are still yellow and, and blue ribbons tied to trees and along school fences. And, and it's really quite moving, all the displays that are in that neighborhood. What, what do you think about the debate? I, I know a lot of it does come from more conservative Republicans, especially on social media, talking about, well, you know, we may support Ukraine, but we're not crazy about all the money American taxpayers are having a foot over there. Is that valid or is that uh, is that anything that people are hearing out there? If war were to spread outside of Ukraine into Eastern Europe, we would end up spending a lot more than what we're spending here. And the missile systems that uh, Zelensky was here to get, the Patriot missile systems, are the kind of investment that U.S. taxpayers make in order to defend against the kind of threat Ukraine is dealing with. And so if it's looked at as a down payment in an effort to avoid much more costly investment of both blood and treasure of Americans, um, maybe that's one way to look at it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we're in it whether we want to be or not. And it's a matter of committing now in in a a big public way or committing later. And it's going to be more costly later. Well, sticking with state regulations for a minute, let's talk cannabis, everyone's favorite subject, especially on a cold day, right? (laughs) Uh, The agency overseeing marijuana dispensary licenses announced a new license lottery for early 2023. So we might be seeing more marijuana shops in the new year. Amy, there's also some cannabis-related news from Chicago Tech Incubator 1871. What's that all about? Yeah, so Cresco Labs in 1871 have announced that they're teaming up uh, to be to create the Cannabis Innovation Lab. So within 1871, of course, a lot of different uh, factions of, of business incubatorship. Uh, but this will be focused specifically on cannabis-based businesses. And they're going to provide technical assistance to new licensees. And they kind of have this goal of of hooking up new people in the industry with veterans in the industry to try to uh, strengthen it. What I'm very interested in is this is another piece of making Chicago kind of this stronghold in the cannabis industry. We have Cresco, we have Pharmacan, we have Green Thumb Industries and Verano. Those are some very big players in the in the cannabis space. And so I think that we're really well positioned here to be this kind of hub in cannabis, what what I think the next piece of that is going to be solving the banking piece of it, because cannabis does not is not legally is not legal federally. Banking is very difficult. So you end up being in this kind of all cash business where there's sort of this uh, workaround that's sort of like an ATM system that looks like a debit card payment. And solving that, I think, will be really the next big step there. It'll be interesting to see if the incubator, too, um, taps into some of the equity efforts yeah. that have been really, you know, I would say criticized now at this point in the game. Um, it took a really long time to get 
um, social equity applicants up and running um, and medical marijuana facilities and companies were able to really seize the market in those first couple of years. And so to the extent that an incubator at 1871 or mm-hmm. any um, you know changes or adjustments to how they run that social equity applicant process, um, I think that people are still really also watching for how Illinois and Chicago can make the cannabis market much more equitable and actually help people who were victims of the war on drugs yeah. tap into that market and benefit from it. Because that's really what got that legislation passed. Exactly. That was why. That was the case they made. That was the whole sort of political spiel was we are doing right by the people who were, um, you know, impacted by and and imprisoned because of the war on drugs. Um, And so I think that's something that people are really also trying to watch very closely. Right, right. And uh, let me ask you, because I live in a state right across the border, Indiana, right. which still doesn't have marijuana. Uh, it still has marijuana illegal. But here in, in Illinois, in Chicago, how do sort of educators teach about marijuana usage um, in the that's schools? A, like, is, a, is That's a great pitch, Michael Puente. That's a great question. <laughs> it's not something that I've um, really looked at much. I mean, obviously, cannabis is still an mm. 18 and up um, mm. thing. Correct. Not 21, 18 and up. Yeah. And so I I think um, it's not really in the K-12 system at all. I will say I have um, there has been some small um, efforts that I've read about um, programs at, you know, community colleges or universities, classes Mm -hmm. about kind of cannabis growth and and how to tap into um, creating a small business out of, (laughs) you know, marijuana. So um, but thanks for the tip. Thanks we'll, for the we'll idea. Look into it. We'll put it on the story list for <laughs> 2023. Right. That's right. There you go. Okay, we're going to stick with statewide news for a bit. David, more than 180, 180 new laws are set to take effect on January 1st. Uh, that's a little bit more than a week, covering a wide range of issues. Are there a few that really stand out for you from that 180? <laughs> Well, anybody who lived through the midterm elections has to be aware that the Safety Act, uh, the mm-hmm. cash, the no cash bail, uh, being the highlight of this uh, criminal justice reform measure that ran more than 700 pages, uh, that is to take effect January 1st. <clears throat> Pardon me. There is a court challenge that uh, still needs to be cleared out. Uh, I think December 28th. We'll know what the ruling is on that, assuming it does is in fact implemented. We will see changes specifically, uh, basically the elimination of cash bail in most crimes, uh, except for violent crimes and some others. Um, Police now will be able to arrest people for trespassing. That's based on a fix to to that bill uh, that was done during the veto session of the legislature. Another big one is uh, workers' rights amendment. A new amendment to the Constitution goes into effect. This expands the right of people to be represented by unions in the in the workplace. And it's got some very interesting language, which is unique to Illinois, um, that to protect the economic welfare and safety at work. People have the right to have their economic welfare and safety protected. That's expansive language that we have not seen in any other state. And it it, it has particular implications in, say, the policing, in education, and in the industrial setting. So that's mm-hmm. going to be very important. There are others there there are now if your car is stolen in a carjacking and whoever then has control of it parks illegally, gets red light traffic tickets, et cetera, 
you no longer will be held responsible for your car once it is stolen from you. That's good news to all of us who might be victims of a carjacking or such. And there are a few others. There, there's altogether about 180 laws that take effect, but those are a few of the highlights. Well, we got about four more minutes left uh, for the show. This is Reset. I'm Michael Puente, if you haven't noticed. I'm in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines on the weekly news recap with Becky Vivi of Chalk Beach, Chicago, David Greising of the Better Government Association, and Amy Guth, host of Crane Chicago Business Podcast, The Daily Gist. Remember, you can watch now on the weekly, the weekly news recap live on the WBEZ's Facebook, and YouTube pages. You can also check out the video live stream right now on Reset's Facebook page. Getting back to David's talk about unionization efforts, a really big story this year. We've seen Starbucks strikes, university and museum workers organizing. This week, Northwestern Memorial Hospital staff went public with their complaints. Becky, what changes do they want? So I think the biggest one is staffing. They want better staffing. Um, And I don't think it's any secret if you've been to an urgent care or an ER or tried to make a doctor's appointment in the last two years, that that there are acute staffing shortages at our hospitals. And so, you know, they they talked about the the fact that, you know, they are constantly having to cover or their patient load has increased. You know, you're talking 15 to 20, uh, 15 to 20 patients you might be monitoring on a floor, which is frankly not safe for patient care either. Um, Now, it's not clear to me. I'm sure there's some like vacancies, even though there's a position available, they haven't Mm -hmm. been able to hire for it. Um, I think hiring for these positions is difficult right now, especially after the two and a half years we've had. Um, You know, it's a hard, it would be be hard to go into healthcare right now in the pandemic. If if I'm I'm, I'm being honest, I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that a job any, if does that a job any of us would want? I'm not sure. It's it's a very challenging job right now. Um, And so I think that is, um, that is a, a, a chief concern that they, they want addressed. And, you know, Northwestern Memorial will have to grapple with that in negotiations. And um, my sense is that the the they are just opening these negotiations. So they they are not um, probably close to the finish line at this point. But to have them kind of out in the public um, makes there a little bit more pressure for them at the table, I'm sure. And um, and fans of the Hideout music venue have reason to celebrate. Amy, what can you give us the latest on this? Yeah, so the Hideout is going to reopen. They had uh, they had closed. They've they've been closed about two months after uh, an employee there, uh, the former program director who who is an artist himself, a musical artist, described the work culture as problematic and said it was distracting and said he did not feel safe after the building was vandalized with some racist symbols. So it had closed. There was a lot of outcry on social media. It's interesting to me how the the hideout is able to galvanize social media users so much because we saw this around the um, the uh, uh, the mega development going in place there. Right there was Lincoln so Yards. Lincoln Yards. Thank yes. you. I'm suddenly like no, wait, it's okay. there's so many <laughs> mega developments this, in I've my seen brain. The sign so many times. Now that's too. right. And the flag that's planted yeah. there. You know they they galvanized so much uh, so much of their their social media network to to speak out about that and and all that. And this was. A very polarizing issue in in the hideout community. They had first made a statement on the website. They took that down. Uh, they've now said that they're going to have a, you know a new leadership reporting structure. They're going to have additional support and resources for staff. They're going to create a diversity and inclusion council. But they're going to reopen on January 10th. That's the plan.
Well, the weekly news recap for 2022 has come to an end. My, many, many, my thanks to Amy Guth, host of Crane Chicago Business Podcast, The Daily Gist, Becky Vivi, Bureau Chief for Chalkbeat Chicago, and David Grising, President of the Better Government Association. We appreciate you braving the cold weather coming out here, <laughs> and uh, make sure you bundle up when you get out there. Yeah, you, you had know, some good tips go. on the first half of the show. <laughs> first so, tips, so, yes. wear gloves and stay inside. The latex gloves, I got to get on that train. <laughs> and I want to wish everybody out there a Merry Christmas. Stay safe, stay warm, and uh, go Bears.